Hey, welcome to the Afikra Community Podcast. This series features a presentation every single episode given by a member of the Afikra community. Every single one of these people you should know is not an expert in what they are talking about, but rather they are driven by their authentic curiosity to learn something new about the Arab world, its histories and its cultures. Each one of these presentations is the product of the person going through our workshop series, finding a topic that they're curious about, honing that question with us, and developing it into a compelling presentation. Some of these are long presentations, about 45 minutes, and some of them are what we call African Forwards, where they're simply recommending something for you to check out. The goal is to highlight scholarship that already exists, to celebrate it, and to learn. I hope you enjoy it. If you're interested in learning more, go to africa.com slash library. Thanks. So here we go. Um, my name is Mohamed Tassabeji. Uh, I'm a Africa Global Ambassador for uh, the city of Boston. This presentation or feature uh, conversation is called Connecting the Seas, <clears throat> sorry, the Suez Canal. And this is the volume one for the Boston chapter uh, in the hopes that future volumes will be in person so that we can get together uh, like Africa means it to be uh, post pandemic. All right, so what led me to this topic? So I'm a civil engineer by trade. Um, and I love construction projects, especially mega projects. Um, the reason I chose to become a civil engineer, <clears throat> sorry, the reason I chose to become a civil engineer was actually because of Roman mega projects. The Romans left temples, aqueducts, baths, hippodromes, all these impressive structures all across the Mediterranean where I grew up. And growing up and seeing them as a kid, it inspired me to become a civil engineer. And for the better, better half of the last 10 years, I've been building construction projects and predominantly large infrastructure projects. I have two pictures on the right. Uh, the top one's the Hoover Dam and the one on the bottom right is um, the Dulles Metro Rail. Uh, both projects completed by companies I worked with. Obviously I didn't work on these ones, but the sense of the projects that I got to work on. Um, but ultimately the reason I chose this topic to talk about was uh, because of Mikey. Uh, he kind of nudged me in this direction uh, he said, hey, look, there's this mega project in our backyard. Um, I didn't know much about it. Um, I was thinking about oil and gas projects. This is more interesting because it's in our backyard. We kind of take it for granted. And I personally didn't know much about it until I started uh, digging deeper into this. So um, let's get started. <clears throat> but before we do, um, there is the presenter's promise, uh, Africa's presenter promise. And I just wanted to tell you guys, I'm not an expert but I promised that I tried to learn as much as I could to satisfy my curiosity about this topic. Uh, someone here might know more than me about this topic. Please correct me, ask questions and contribute, but do it nicely. Uh, again, I'm not trying to persuade you of, an, of my agenda or any agenda for that matter, uh, or convince you to take action. My only hope is that my presentation might cultivate your own curiosities. Um, and as we go through the presentation, you'll see there's lots of tangents and lots of interesting things that came up that I'm interested in exploring and hopefully someone else will be interested in exploring as well. So the presentation said, who thought of building the Suez Canal? Uh, but again, sitting down with Mikey, to make the question more interesting, we rephrased it. And the, the question that I have on the screen is, if the Suez Canal is obviously a good idea, makes perfect sense, why did it take so long to build? And why did it take so long to build successfully? And then, what were the unintended consequences? So each of the words that I have highlighted or sorry, in bold and underlined are the different sections that we're gonna dive into. 
Oops. All right, so here's a brief outline of what we're gonna talk about today. Um, we'll start off with Suez Who, then we'll talk about why it was obviously a good idea back then and in the modern age. Then the most interesting part, we'll talk about the multiple attempts, several different folks who tried to build it successfully or for a short period of time. Um, then we'll get to the successful attempt that built it in the fashion that we know of today. Then we'll finish off with the unintended consequences. And um, if you know me, uh, I love fun facts. So the last section is actually fun facts about Suez Canal and the folks who were involved in it. Uh, there's two addendums all the way at the end. I think this presentation will be made available online. So you can actually uh, jump into those, but we won't get a chance to talk about them today because of time. Uh, all right, Suez who? So let's uh, go to 10,000 feet and back to Geography 101, so our middle school or elementary geography, and see the region we're talking about. So back in the day, this was the extent of the world, right? This is what everyone thought the world ex occupied. Um, we see Europe, we see the Middle East, we see Northern Africa. Uh, and the region that we want to talk about, the Suez, is actually the region that's highlighted in the red box. So let's zoom in. So we have the Mediterranean to the north, the Red Sea to the south, Asia to our right, and Africa to our left. And this triangular piece of land in the center is the Sinai Peninsula. To the left of it is the Gulf of Suez, which we're going to be talking about today. And to the right is the Gulf of Aqaba. So the Gulf of Suez is actually named for a city called Suez, uh, right by where I have the word Suez. So it's at the, at the entrance of the current Suez Canal, but this is the city that gives the Gulf its name. Uh, and this over here to the left, this green triangle is the Nile Delta as it dumps into the Mediterranean Sea. So now that we know where we are, why is the Suez or the Suez Canal a good idea back then and in the modern day? So again, let's go back uh, in time to the days of the ancient Egyptians and the Phoenicians and the Greeks, the folks who, who basically roamed the world uh, back then. So. If you remember from history class, most of these civilizations thrived if they were built, um, if, if they if they grew up or they were strategically located along a body of water, whether it's a river, a lake, sea, or an ocean, right? So the, for the ancient Egyptians, it's the Nile, the Romans, the, the Tiber, the Euphrates, uh, all these different rivers or bodies of water served several different functions. Uh, one, it was for irrigation so that people could plant stuff and grow food and cotton. Um, and the second reason, which I, I think is more interesting, is for transportation. So if you grow something and you want to get to a different part of your kingdom or empire, uh, the fastest and cheapest way to do it is uh, through water. You put it on a ship and, and you take it somewhere. Um, and then also, if you don't have something, but you want to sell something, you trade it over water. And so the Phoenicians, who are in modern day Syria and Lebanon, the Persians, the ancient Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, and all the Asian kingdoms, uh, this is kind of their meeting point. Um, and the fastest and cheapest way for them to get stuff to each other is through water. So having a shortcut that basically connects these two seas is a no-brainer, right? They could do it over land, but it's gonna be more treacherous and less likely to succeed. So that's back then. Why is it a good idea today? So the image I have on here is um, post-industrial revolution. So the world's become smaller. Uh, we've become more industrious. Most of Western Europe has industrialized and now they're basically making a lot of goods and services that they wanna trade. And their biggest trading partner is India and China. So I have two routes shown on here, um, going from the first route, the Cape of Good Hope route, going from 
London, all the way around Africa, around the Horn of Africa or the Cape of Good Hope, and out to trade with India and China. But imagine if there was a shortcut, if you could go through the Mediterranean instead of going around Africa, and then just cut right through the Suez, right, the small isthmus here, through the uh, Red Sea and out into India and China. So the two routes that I have here as examples are actually estimated based on traveling from London to the Straits of Humros. And it's really just uh, to give you an example of how long the route would take if you went around Africa, 11,000 nautical miles. And if you took the Suez Canal route, it's 6,000 nautical miles. So almost cutting the trip in half. And this is just going uh, to the Persian Gulf, not all the way uh, out west, uh, out east, sorry. So it made sense even for the Europeans uh, later on in life. All right, now that we've talked about why it made sense and what the Suez is, um, let's talk about the folks who tried to build the Suez Canal. Okay, so the first attempt to ever build the Suez Canal was by these little known folks that lived um, in ancient Egypt at the time. Um, they didn't shy away from building mega projects. We all know they built the pyramids. So building a canal for them was, was really, uh, should not have been a challenge. Um, and so the first documented attempt of building the canal was by Siti I. And the canal was known the canal, as the Canal of the Pharaohs. Um, it's thought to have been built in uh, the uh, 1310 BC. Um, but instead of connecting the Mediterranean directly to the Suez, what they did was they connected the Nile Delta, so a branch of the Nile River, to the Gulf of Suez. Obviously, there were other pharaohs who also tried to kind of revive the project, uh, but the, most, the next most serious attempt was actually the Persian emperor Darius I. He tried to revive the project, uh, but he was the first among several who was given incorrect information. His engineers, his constructors, whoever was advising him, basically went out and looked at the Red Sea and looked at the Nile and looked at the Mediterranean and said, hey, listen, the elevation of the Red Sea is much higher than Egypt. If you build this canal, you'll flood all of Egypt. So he never even tried. Right here, we have two pictures. Uh, the one on the right is a schematic that shows um, the Canal of the Pharaohs. So the first time the, the canal was ever built. Uh, and like we said, so the Egyptians are trading and transporting goods up and down the Nile. Uh, they can navigate it. And the easiest way to get to the Suez is off of the branch of the Nile Delta across to what's known as the Bitter Lakes. They shortcut through the Bitter Lakes and then they hop over and then in the Gulf of Suez. And the image on the left is actually a Google image from 2020. And I have in a red arrow kind of highlighted the assumed route of what we would think it, where it would be today. Um, and as you can see, there is still some vegetation and it looks like there's still some remnants of it. Um, so it's no surprise the Egyptians did use canals, not just for transportation, but for irrigation to, to flood fields so that they can grow stuff. So it's a no brainer for them to be using smaller canals to kind of extend or, or make these two areas closer. All right, let's move on to other attempts. The next successful or relatively successful attempt was by the Ptolemies. So Ptolemy II actually connected the seas or has thought, was thought to have connected the seas, uh, but his problem was uh, he couldn't keep up with it. So if you think about building a canal, you're basically dredging up all the sand, you're moving it out of the water so that you can navigate it. Um, but the problem is you're in a desert, so there's dunes that are gonna flow back into the water. Uh, the Nile has not been dammed yet and it floods regularly. So it's gonna bring, be bringing sand and silt back in. So if you're not constantly dredging it up, 
it's going to fill back up and you won't be able to kind of navigate down it. So it's thought to have existed for a short period of time, but it was too difficult to maintain, so they gave up. The next interesting uh, attempt was actually Napoleon Bonaparte. And I have a picture of him here with the Sphinx that he supposedly damaged with his cannon. Uh, but he actually really occupied Egypt despite the British. So this is the start of the British and French rivalry. But he he really wanted Egypt to show British the British that he was superior. Uh, and so building a canal was a no-brainer for him because he could overpower the British um, uh, merchants and have a quicker route to Asia. But again, his engineers told him that the level of the two seas, the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, were not at the same level. The Red Sea was higher, um, and he was not interested in building locks or, or in any expensive construction. So he didn't even try. So those are the most interesting of the multiple attempts of folks to try and build the Suez Canal. Um, now let's talk about the final successful attempt um, to, that built the Suez in what we know it as today. Before we dive in and talk about the different people involved, let's look at the world order. So this is happening around the 1850s, okay? Um, the British empire is becoming stronger and stronger. Uh, the Ottomans or the Ottoman empire has, is becoming, is going to become the sick man of Europe. It still rules Egypt to a certain degree, but there's a viceroy, his name's Ali Basha. So they're somewhat independent from the Ottomans, but still kind of under their rule. Uh, and at the same time in France, Napoleon III's ruling. So again, for these folks, it makes sense to build this uh, shortcut, uh, but this is kind of the world order at the time. All right, so let's talk about the different players and how they interact. So we talked about the Ottomans and the Brits, they're best buds, they're really close friends, helping each other out constantly. The French had lobbied for a viceroy in Egypt uh, to the Ottomans. So obviously the Egyptians are kind of indebted to them and they're best friends. Uh, but the French and the British still don't like each other, and the Ottomans and the Egyptians don't like each other, which complicates things. And that's why I've titled this slide as the art of diplomacy. So in comes Ferdinand de Lesseps, and this is the gentleman right here on the top right with the lovely mustache. Uh, he was a French diplomat. Um, his dad was a consul and uh, a consul and an ambassador for France and Egypt. So he grew up uh, in Egypt. And uh, he was also a consul himself, first in Alexandria and then in Cairo. So he knew Ali Basha, but he was even closer with his son, Said Basha, who's this gentleman on the bottom, on the bottom right-hand side. So what happens, Mr. de Lesseps reads Napoleon's memoirs, Napoleon Bonaparte, not Napoleon III, and he hears talk about this extravagant, extravagant canal that would cut the, the travel time between East and West and make transportation and trade much faster. And he gets excited about building this, um, but there's a lot of obstacles. The British are concerned that someone's gonna build this and they're gonna lose their maritime advantage. And the same thing with the Ottoman Empire, they don't want someone to have uh, a quicker route to trade, but also interestingly, they didn't want their empire to kind of be bisected, right? Because geographically speaking, it would create a waterway between two parts of their empire. So obviously he's not able to do much. He goes back to Europe, the Lesseps, and uh, continues his career in diplomacy. But things change. What changes on a global scale? The Crimean War happens, um, which is basically a war between the Ottomans and the Russians. And um, what happens is the French and the British 
ally with the Ottomans. They jump in to help them, they loan them money, and they basically fight alongside them. What this does, it basically brings the French and the British closer together politically, uh, but it also indebts them, uh, indebts the Ottomans to the French and the, the French and the British, not just because they helped them win the war, but because they also gave them money. So they kind of owe, owe them money now. Um, also, uh, um, sorry, this is Ahmed Basha, uh, Ali Basha, sorry, not Abbas Basha. Um, so the gentleman who's the viceroy of Egypt, who was also opposed to the project, passes away, making way for his son, Hamad Said Basha, who we saw earlier. And he's very close friends with Dilseps. So what does Mr. Ferdinand do? He rushes back to Egypt and talks to his old friend, who basically gives him the green light and says, go ahead and, and start the project. Uh, the only obstacle left is the British. Um, and what Ferdinand tries to do is he tries to lobby the British merchants in hopes of pressuring the British government to let them do this project, uh, but that also doesn't work. Um, I think something that's very interesting to notice in this kind of uh, game of chess between these European countries is the British don't occupy Egypt or the Ottoman Empire, but at the same time, all these governments in, in Europe, the Middle East and North Africa do not want to upset the British. So you can see that British influence is growing and growing in the region. Um, so what does uh, Mr. de Lesseps do? Um, he starts a company, the Suez Canal Company. And uh, he actually makes this an international company, which is important for optics because he wants the Ottomans and the British to know that this is not a monopoly that the French own. This is an international company anyone can buy stocks in. Uh, and he headquarters it in Paris. Uh, and he lobbies uh, the French to buy shares in this company, which basically helps finance the construction. And he gives 44% of the ownership to the Viceroy of Egypt. Um, at the top right, is an image of um, the plan to build the canal uh, from the Suez Canal Company. And on the bottom right-hand uh, side is a délégation des coupons d'action for the Suez Canal Company. So construction starts. Uh, it takes about 10 years and some 34,000 laborers. Most of these laborers, unfortunately, are forced laborers. But again, in comes in a new viceroy, Ismail Pasha, the son of Said Pasha, uh, in 1863, and he bans the use of forced labor. He tells the Suez Canal Company and Ferdinand, nope, you can't do this anymore. So what they end up having to do is to kind of scramble and improvise. Um, and they end up inventing uh, custom-made steel and coal-powered shovels and dredgers to build the canal. So here's an image of one of those uh, dredgers. Um, and what you see on the right-hand side, this big contraption, is actually one of those dredgers and it's sitting on a barge. So it's floating in the middle of the water. And what it basically does is basically has either a bucket or a driller or something to scoop up the sand from the bottom of the canal. And it basically carries it up on to a conveyor belt and then another conveyor belt and dumps it to the side on the banks of the Suez Canal or the future Suez Canal. Um, and so if you've ever been to the Suez Canal or if you ever go, you'll notice that on either side, there is huge sand embankment. So they're basically taking the sand from the bottom and stockpiling it on either side. All right, 10 years later, it's November 17, 1869, and the Suez Canal's officially opened uh, under French patronage. But the evening before the ceremony, Mr. Basha's there, Ferdinand's there, all these diplomats are there. Everyone's excited to sail down the Suez Canal and be the first ship to sail down the Suez Canal. 
Um, and the French have one of their frigates uh, ready to sail down the Suez Canal with these diplomats. So everyone goes to sleep. Um, while everyone's asleep, the Brits, still annoyed at the French, they have their Her Royal Majesty's Newport uh, positioned right outside the Suez Canal, and it maneuvers in front of the French ship. And when dawn breaks and everyone can see, they start sailing down the Suez Canal to embarrass the French and spite them. So told you so, we were the first ones to sail down it. Um, unfortunately for the Brits, um, the French have the last laugh because the Suez Canal is obviously runs north and south and it has a prevailing east and west wind. Most of the British ships are still under sail. So when they're sailing down the Suez Canal, they're kind of zigzagging. Whereas most of the French ships are already steam or coal powered. And it takes a few years for the Brits to convert all their fleet. So ironically, they continue to use the Cape of Good Hope route and go around Africa. So we talked about the Suez Canal and how it was built, um, the diplomacy that got the company created uh, to finance it and the hardships building it. What were some of the unintended consequences of building the canal? So the most interesting is what's known as Lesepian migration. So it's named after obviously Ferdinand de Lesseps and it's um, basically a phenomenon about how the fish basically uh, changed in the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, so the Red Sea is saltier and more nutrition poor than the Mediterranean Sea. With time, the Egyptians build the low Aswan Dam and the high Aswan Dam, which basically uh, prevents the Nile from distributing more of the silt through the river out into the Mediterranean Basin and the Nile Delta. So it's, it's, de it's depleting more and more of the nutrients that are available in the Mediterranean Sea. So what does this create? It creates a phenomenon where the Red Sea fish, the fish that live in the Red Sea, have an advantage over the fish that are living in the Mediterranean. And they migrate and they push out all the local fish in the Mediterranean. Um, so I don't think back then there was a lot of environmental studies um, and this was a phenomenon I don't think anyone thought would happen. So um, that's it for most of um, the, the topic about the Suez Canal itself and how it was built and the unintended consequences. And now to one of my favorite parts, fun facts. And I think I skipped one, yep, there it is. So um, the first fun fact that I wanna talk about is about Mr. de Lesseps himself. Um, so I, I don't talk about the politics of the Suez Canal, but it features a lot in the Cold War, uh, in a lot of the conflicts in the region. Uh, but Abdel Nasser, who eventually basically liberates and becomes uh, the president of Egypt, uh, eventually annexes the Suez Canal. The way he does this is actually he broadcasts it over a radio uh, speech that he's giving to the Egyptian people. Um, so he, as he's doing this, as he's giving the speech, his army's ready to kind of storm the Suez Canal Authority building and take it over. Um, so what he does, though, is he uses the code name Dilaseps as a signal for his army to kind of uh, storm the building. Um, and in case they didn't miss the word, he actually uses the word 52 times in his speech to give them the go ahead. So it's a fun tidbit. The next interesting fact is, um, so if you've been to the Suez Canal or if you look at the map, we talked that there's a city called Suez on the Southern side, on the Southern entrance to the Red Sea. On the North side, there's a city called Port Said, which Amri Diab's from, and you've probably heard of before. So this city is actually named after uh, Said Basha. So the viceroy that eventually gives the green light, gives Ferdinand de Lesseps the authority to basically start the company and build the project. So it was named in his honor. Um, I must have shuffled the, the, the pictures, but the reason I have the Statue of Liberty on here is because of the next fun fact. So 
we all know that the Statue of Liberty was a French gift to the Americans, right? That they put in Staten Island, uh, it's not, sorry, Staten Island, uh, in, the, in the New York Harbor uh, as a gift to the Americans. But what uh, a lot of people don't know is they actually thought of giving that stat the statue as a gift to the Egyptians to put in Port Said as kind of Egypt's beacon to the east, um, uh, opening the waterways between east and west. Uh, for whatever reason, the French changed their mind and end up gifting it to the French uh, and the Suez Canal doesn't get a statue. Uh, another cool fact uh, about Mr. de Lesseps uh, is that even though he, he built the, the Suez Canal, a lot of people said that he couldn't or he wouldn't or it was too difficult. Uh, so he kind of proved all the people who didn't believe in him wrong. And uh, he kind of was encouraged when he built successfully. Um, so his next project uh, is the Panama Canal. And the picture on the right is a picture of the uh, Panama Canal today. So he goes over there and he tries to build it and he fails miserably. Uh, a lot of tropical diseases and malaria and yellow fever basically uh, decimate most of the laborers and the folks working on the project, but he did try. He wanted it to be his legacy. Um, and actually he went over there with uh, Gustav Eiffel Gustav Eiffel was supposed to work on the locks um, for the Panama Canal, obviously because of the water uh, height elevation. Um, and the last fun fact, I put this in here because it's 2020 uh, in the age of Corona. Um, the Lesseps faced a lot of challenges building this project. And uh, one of those was an interruption of two years. Uh, one, he was in Egypt kind of lobbying for the project. Um, there was a, a, an outbreak of the plague and for two years, basically he couldn't do anything. So just a reminder for us all and for anyone who has a big project like the Suez Canal that they're thinking of kind of taking up, uh, don't let the coronavirus or COVID kind of uh, detract you because uh, it didn't prevent Mr. Ferdinand from seeing his project through. So that's it for me and for the presentation. I uh, just wanna tell you guys a tiny bit about the sources that I used. Um, so the most um, useful source that I relied on heavily is this book. Um, I have a picture of it on the right. It's available on Amazon if anyone's interested in kind of reading the whole book. It's called Suez Canal, uh, the history and legacy of the world's most famous waterway. Uh, there's also a very nice, a long article by the CNN about Egypt's ambition, the Suez Canal then and now. Uh, and I also watched the documentary, a BBC documentary about the other side of Suez. Uh, and finally, uh, the Suez Canal Authority uh, that runs the Suez Canal today has a website with a lot of sources. Uh, they have archival photos, they have a lot of text. Uh, it's a great resource um, if you guys would like to uh, read more or learn more about it. Um, and that's it for me. Um, if you have any questions, uh, I'm sure there may be some in the chat, but you can also always email me uh, the email address I have listed. Great. Thanks, Hamad. Okay, so we have a few questions in the chat. Um, we'll start with Mazen, and then I have a question, and then I believe Ahmed has a question, and then Philip has a question. Thanks a lot, Hamad. This is, yeah, it, I think it was super interesting. I was actually planning on building a canal during COVID, but then I, I was demotivated by COVID. So thanks for the for the motivation there. Hamad, um, my main question is on the um, the motivation for the earlier attempts. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, I, I see the, obviously, the, the, the economic motivation uh, post-industrialization, um, but it, earlier as well, I mean, of course, there, there was always trade, but was it, was it basically the same, um, same motivation? Like, if you look at the, I think the, if you go, actually, if you could just quickly turn back to that page that showed um, 
when the first attempts were. I think the first one was like, yeah, 1310 BC. So just wondering if the logic was the same. Like, do we know, do we have recorded record, like a uh, history of, of that, of like what the motivation was in 1310 versus say like around 500 BC versus post AD? Was it all like roughly the same? Um, it's a very interesting question. Uh, so the way I, I, when I, I opened up and I phrased it was kind of the book, the books, the books that I, I was reading talk about kind of the benefit for trade for all these civilizations back then. But does it explicitly say that the Egyptians wanted to use it so that they can get out to the Red Sea and trade with uh, who occupied Saudi Arabia or with the Asian countries or further down in Africa? Uh, I, I didn't see any records for that. Um, the the reason we know that they tried this is because obviously there's some remnants that show that it existed. But mm -hmm. what motivated them to actually do it, I honestly couldn't say. It would be really interesting to dive in deeper and see. Um, I would assume trade, um, but again, um, I, we don't. I don't. I didn't find anything that specifically said what their exact motivation was. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's an interesting thought. All right, Mohammed, I had two questions for you. Uh, one is a really silly question, and but since I, I have a captive engineer, you can explain it to me. How did people measure sea levels pre-20th century? Like, how did they suspect that the Mediterranean and the Red Sea were different sea levels? That's the first question. And the second question has, from a sort of engineering perspective, has the canal changed in any meaningful way since it was first built? Like, since boats started passing through it, have there been any meaningful additions that were added on to sort of enhance, make enhancements? Um, good questions. The first question, um, as an engineer, I know how we measure elevation today. And it's, so there's actually uh, stations. So in the US, if you go around, you'll see there's like medallions, they're gold medallions um, that the US yeah. Geological Service will basically put out and say what the elevation is. Um, and people go off those benchmarks. Um, back in the day, it's actually a good question. I don't know how in the days of Napoleon or the days of the Romans, how they were able to check elevation, especially since it's a large distance. So it's not like yeah. you stand at one end and look at the other end. Um, so no, honestly, I, the I French, don't know. The French were just like, yo, yo, it's, it's totally different. We did, <laughs> like, how do they fall for this? So the thing, what I what I did find that was interesting for why they got different measurements is, uh, I think there wasn't a big understanding of uh, tides at the time. So mm -hmm. it's said that when Napoleon Bonaparte's engineers went out and measured it, they measured one end and then it took them like three weeks to get to the other end and there was like a high tide. So they measured it and they're like, oh, it's much higher. So they assumed that they weren't at the same level. But if they were able to kind of make the measurements in the same day, they probably would have found out that they're at the same level. But to your question, I, I don't know exactly how they did it back then. I just took it as a fact, but it would be interesting to see how that engineering technology kind of evolved. Okay, so th then the second question about like meaningful changes, um, have they so, expanded the, the canal in ways that are needed for the 21st century or? So um, actually it's been changed a lot. Uh, so one thing that I talked about with previous attempts is you have to keep dredging it. So it's a it's ongoing process to keep the, the canal kind of dredged, uh, especially in the center when you have big ships with uh, big water drafts, it has to be maintained. So that's an ongoing process. Uh, but the biggest change, and we didn't get to talk, this, uh, talk to this um, too much, you can fit two old ships, two small ships down the canal going either direction. 
but with the big tankers and the uh, container ships that we have today, you can't have them both kind of go um, north and south at the same time. So they platoon. They have 15 ships wide on the north and 15 ships wide on the south. And as they go through the canal, there's uh, bypasses. They use some of the lakes, but there's also some bypasses where the canal is wider so that they can kind of wait while the other platoon kind of goes past them. Uh, since then, I think in 2005, um, they did make a lot of uh, expansions. So they added bypasses. So they expanded the canal so that now you can travel north and south at the same time. They expanded it and they also made it deeper. So yeah, they've made a lot of changes since then. And I think uh, in one of the appendices, if you get to the end, I give some of the, fun, the rough facts uh, about what it was back then and what it is today. So yeah. Can you, yeah, can you go back to the what it was back then? Yeah. Okay. So when it opened, it was 164 kilometers in length and eight meters deep. Um, yeah. And today it's 193 kilometers and it's 24 meters deep. So obviously much deeper. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, okay, Ahmed, I think, had a question or a comment, and then Philip, and then if anyone has any other questions, feel free to add them in. Ahmed? Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for the presentation. Um, uh, Mikey, it wasn't a question. It was more like, I guess, a comment. Do you, do you still want me to proceed? Okay. Um, uh, like, one of, one, I think... Okay, there were two comments, I guess, but uh, but uh, the first thing when you said um, that the British didn't occupy Egypt, but but um, but arguably that might be a statement open to interpretation because because the uh, many people do think that this canal was built under occupation and because of the, the methods of construction used earlier on, um, it it might be worth uh, thinking about, like because because uh, that's how basically the cities along the Suez Canal, as far as I know, were were made. They 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 are unique in terms of the culture and that they combine uh, the 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 labor culture from all over Egypt. So the 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 port side Suez and, and Ismailia, because they combine um, people from all parts of Egypt to create this brand new culture that is more than the sum of the parts. Um, and the second comment was. Um, also, something I'm not completely sure of, but it might be worth uh, further study, is, is as far as I know, the Suez Canal was the first build-operate-transfer model of a business in the entire world. And, and that's one thing that Nasser did, was he, he took over the canal before the contract had expired as a political move. And, that's tri and that triggered a war, like in 1956, uh, that involved Israel, Egypt, Britain and France and just for the annexation of this canal. So I think that is also a critical part of the canal's uh, history and, and identity as well that might be worth um, looking into. But more comments than questions, but thank you. This is a lot of information indeed. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for the comments. Um, I, I just want to clarify, when I said that Egypt wasn't occupied, I was talking in 1850. So when the Ottoman Empire still existed, everyone was kind of still worrying what the British would think, even though they didn't occupy it, right? So the French and the, the, the French and the, uh, the British, the British obviously eventually with uh, the end of the first world divide up the Ottoman Empire and they do occupy it, whether as, as colonies or mandates, and they do eventually occupy Egypt. The, I don't get into it, but the, the British eventually buy out all the stocks from the Egyptians and the French. So they become the sole holders of the Suez Canal Company. And they do occupy it. And what you're talking about is correct. But for me, what was interesting is even though they didn't have troops on the ground and it was still under Ottoman rule, everyone was worried about upsetting the Brits. So they, they had influence before they even occupied it. But you're absolutely correct. They used forced labor. 
and eventually they did own it um, and they basically occupied e Egypt after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. They did. Um, the second comment about the build, operate, or transfer, um, honestly, so I know it is, um, I know it was basically set up as an international company. I don't know if it was build, operate, or, or and build, operate, and transfer. It could be. Uh, it would be interesting to see because if that's the case, my understanding for most of this is that it, when it was annexed, so basically Egypt wanted its independence and they felt that this was this was part of uh, Egypt's property and they should benefit from um, from the, the funds and, and basically all the, the fees going to the Suez Canal. Uh, but, but I'd be interested in to, to checking further because if what you're saying is correct, then they basically, it was just the end of the agreement. So they should have basically just taken it over and there should have there should not have been a fight or a war. Um, and then about the, the whole war around the Suez Canal. So most of the presentation I was focused about how it was built and, and the, the multiple attempts back then. Um, but uh, there is an appendix. Um, so if you have time, I talk about the Suez Canal crisis and I talk about uh, the 1967 war and the 1973 war. It's just, I think a lot of the audience sometimes in the Arab world knows about these things and I, I just didn't have time to get to that stuff. But it is, it is a big part of uh, the Suez Canal. It, it became a big part of the Cold War. So hopefully that kind of addressed some of the comments. Great. Um, okay, we have, uh, I think a question from Philip, and then a question from Marola. Hi, everybody. Um, I actually had a question, but then I have a second question, which I'll ask first, which is how do you find access to the appendices, the appendixes? If anybody wants to read them, you say they're there, but I don't know how you access them. That's, I guess, this first question now. And the second one is, could you explain why they have the, um, the dams? and uh, the locks and why was that necessary? Um, so, so the first question, I, I think uh, Mikey may be able to guide us a bit more. I think the presentation will be made available online so you can actually download it and you can rewatch this uh, video recording. But once you download it, you can scroll through. So at the end, after uh, the contact me information, there is addendum one with the slides and addendum two with the rest of the slides. Uh, so you can scroll through them and obviously email me if you have any other questions. Um, to your second point um, about the dams and the locks. So the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea are actually at the same level. Um, so there is no locks on the Suez Canal. It's basically an open water uh, channel or, or, or big ditch. Um, what I did talk about with the dams was the high Aswan Dam and the low Aswan Dam that eventually get built in Egypt. Um, those did affect the migration of the fish because the Nile basically brings nutrients and silt into the Mediterranean basin in the Nile Delta. Uh, so when you build a, a huge dam that created uh, Lake Nasser and basically prevents all these nutrients from making it to the Mediterranean Sea, you're kind of setting this environment um, that's, that has less nutrients and is saltier, that's not hospitable to native Mediterranean fish, but Red Sea fish kind of thrive in this environment. So they all start migrating through the canal and go north. So hopefully that kind of clarified. The dams are on the river, not on the canal. Yes, on the Nile River, yes. So, so as a consequence of building the dams on the river, then there were something happened with the fish in the canal. Yes, so if I have a, an image of um, kind of Egypt and you can see the Suez Canal. So you can see where it says Lake Nasser and there's a big water 
uh, body of water. That's the Aswan High Dam, and the low dam is actually right in front of it. They're both in, in a city called Aswan in Egypt. Uh, that basically restricts the flow of uh, silt and, and water um, kind of along the river. And there's actually other dams now, and I think Ethiopia is building a dam. So there's, there's a lot that goes on with the Nile that affects downstream uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Thank you. My pleasure. Great. And yeah, Philip, this will go to africa.com slash library um, along with the rest of them. Okay, last question from Rula, and then um, I'll do a little outro. I think Rula says she can't talk because it's too loud around her, so I'm going to read the question. Uh, what's the current strategic importance of the Suez Canal given regional tensions? Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to try and answer as much as I know from kind of being abreast of the news. Obviously, I didn't focus a lot on this uh, in my presentation. It's still a very important waterway um, because um, it does create a shortcut, so it makes shipping costs uh, shorter um, you, and, and, and shrinks the, the, the time it takes to ship stuff. So if you're shipping something from China all the way to the US and you have a shorter trip, uh, it won't go as bad, it won't go bad as quickly and you'll get it there quicker. Um, but with modern day evolution, there's been some people who still now want to go around the Cape of Good Hope to avoid the high fees of the Suez Canal because they're not concerned about how long it's gonna take. They just wanna do the cheapest method possible. Um, depending where you're going to, um, there's uh, the North Sea Passage, uh, which is, uh, I don't know if I'll be able to show it on a map, but it's basically going through the Arctic Circle. If you're going from, um, so on this map, if you're going from Western Europe, you go up instead of down. And that passage through the Northern, Northern Sea Passage has always been kind of landlocked because of ice. But with climate change and with melting uh, um, ice sheets, that passage is opening up. And that is actually not, it's counterintuitive, but it is actually a quicker route than going this way if you're going to Japan, say, or Korea. Uh, but again, those are still, uh, up for debate whether it makes sense uh, to be able to sail through those year round or not. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to take the, I'm going to share my screen again. I put in the chat. Well, first of all, thanks to Muhammad. That was a really, really fantastic presentation. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I uh, pseudo coerced you into doing, uh, to doing this. You're uniquely suited to answer a bunch of these questions. So that was fantastic. Um, Please give us feedback on how today's event went. Um, it's a single question survey, africa.com slash was this good. Um, and then if you are interested in supporting us, go to africa.com slash donate or patreon.com slash africa um, and join the you know hundreds of people who are helping make this happen and helping us uh, keep going. So uh, I'll add the link in the chat as well. Thanks everybody for joining. Hope you stay safe and stay sane as much as that is possible. And um, yeah, be well. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. Four quick final notes. The first is if you feel like watching this presentation in video form, look us up on YouTube, subscribe, hit that bell, do all that good stuff. Second is if you ever feel like attending these events, we have them every Saturday and you can find out more information at afikta.com slash RSVP. The third is if you feel like developing a community presentation, 
We have workshops that are free and open to all every two weeks. You can go to afikra.com slash workshop. And the fourth is that our work is made possible by the hundreds of people around the world who are inspired by our work and want to build this movement. Please consider becoming one of them and supporting our, our work at afikra.com slash support. Thanks so much. Have a great day and see you next time.